I grew up with a lot of family confusion, family drama, family trauma. Really, one of the only things that saved me was my relationship with animals. And when I was growing up, I had the what I think of as the human paradox. I loved animals unconditionally, but I also loved Burger King and McDonald's and pepperoni pizza. And then when I was 19, I finally realized, oh, it is profoundly inconsistent. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 76 of season four, number 271 overall. And today is a very special show, for we have with us a talented musician who has sold more than 20 million records worldwide. He is a Grammy-nominated artist, and most importantly, he is a friend to animals. He also happens to be a very good friend to us here at the Physicians Committee as well. In just a moment, we will be joined by Moby. And today, you will hear the story of how his dad saved animals from a nearby university when Moby was just little more than a toddler, and how he formed this incredible bond with animals at such a young age, and how this would become the foundation for what would be a life spent as an animal advocate. But you'll also hear him talk about, despite having formed this bond with these animals at such a young age, the blinders that he put on to continue eating hamburgers and meat as he got older. But eventually, you'll also hear him talk about the epiphany that he had that eventually convinced him that said, yeah, I really should go vegan. We'll also talk about Moby's new cookbook, that is filled with delicious plant-based recipes from a restaurant that he founded in LA called Little Pine. Plus, we're also going to talk about the many, many tattoos that he has supporting a vegan lifestyle and why he proudly uses his body as a billboard to promote the things that he believes in. He is a music megastar and he is here with us today as a devout vegan and a friend of the show. Here now, is an incredible conversation with Moby. Thank you so very much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I was watching your TEDx talk last night, knowing that I was gonna speak with you today. And that was a lot of information packed into 12 minutes. You really did a great job of condensing your life story there. And you talked about this bond that you built with animals at such an early age. And I just got to wondering, like, how differently do you think that your life would have played out had animals not come into your life when you were so young? It's sort of an interesting question um, because I actually had a therapist once in a, in a fairly lighthearted, hopefully funny way, say that if it hadn't been for animals, I probably would have ended up being a psychopath. Um, because I grew up with a lot of 
you know, family confusion, family drama, family trauma. Um, and so really one of the only things that saved me was my relationship with animals. And as I talk about in the TED talk, when I was growing up, um, I had the, what I think of as the human paradox or one of the human paradoxes. I don't know if paradoxes is the plural of paradox or paradoxes. Um, <laughs> we'll go with it. And the paradox was that I loved animals unconditionally, but I also loved Burger King and McDonald's and pepperoni pizza. And up until the time I was 19, that had never seemed like a paradox. <coughs> um, because it was so ubiquitous, you know, it was the status quo. And then when I was 19, I finally realized, oh, it is profoundly, deeply, and forgive me for stating the obvious, but it's profoundly inconsistent and unethical to contribute to the suffering and death of the beings on the planet with whom I have the most connection. Um, and so that's when I was 19, I became a vegetarian, that was 1984, and then I became a vegan in 1987. So yeah, this year will be my, my 34 year vegan anniversary. Well, happy anniversary. Um, let me let me ask you kind of a, a philosophical question. Do you think that man is born inherently with the knowledge that, you know, um, animals are our friends? So like essentially we're born with that epiphany that we've already been had. And then we're kind of trained to put blinders on over time to put up that wall. So you can't really see that connection between, well, you've got a dog at home, you've got a cat at home and you love them to death. but at the same time, you're eating a cow, which very much is a live creature with emotions and feelings. And is that something that we put blinders up to, or um, is that something that we have to learn over time? Uh, I My perspective is that it's almost an aspect, a function of heredity and neural architecture. And what I mean by that is for the longest time and for most species this is the case you know um dopamine and serotonin determine your narratives you know for the longest time our ancestors going back millions of years basically if something kept them alive and made them feel safe and good they were like oh that must be a good thing um and unfortunately we have inherited that you know that like because nature didn't lie to us for a for a very long time nature was pretty consistent like if it kept you alive kept you fed kept you warm kept you safe it was probably a relatively benign thing and you should pursue more of it um unfortunately as i said like we've we're dealing with the pernicious inheritance of that where now humans think like, oh, if it makes me feel good, it must be okay. Which leads to so many contradictions. It leads to us being, you know, seven and a half, eight billion people who claim to be peace loving, who are constantly starting wars and getting in fist fights and killing each other. You know, the nine billion people on the planet who most likely claim to be animal lovers, 
killing a tr you know a trillion animals a year it's you know health loving people who smoke cigarettes and take drugs um ethical people who cheat on their spouses like it's we basically all we do is prioritize anything that makes us feel good and deep down there's still that belief that if it makes us feel good it must be okay and i really think evolution for humans to survive we need to evolve past that like you could say neural neurologically it's and i'm being overly broad it's empowering the prefrontal cortex you know it's empowering executive thinking where we are capable of saying it's categorically inconsistent to love animals and also contribute to their suffering and death man that's that's a pretty profound statement there um you're mentioning kind of like what you just described reminds me kind of the state of the world that we live in right now. There's just so much anger out there and hypocrisy and all the things that you just touched on. And one of the things that I learned very early on in working with the physicians committee is one of our dietitians came on and they actually talked about the research between people who eat a plant-based diet versus a diet that is filled predominantly with meat and how their outlook um, on things is completely different. Um, so I'm wondering if more of society shifted over, in your opinion, to eating a plant-based diet, how much differently do you think things would be playing out in the world right now? It's a wonderful question. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I was going to say on one hand, as we know, there's so many different reasons why people choose to go vegan, you know, or vegetarian or plant-based whatever their choice is. You know, for some people it's love of animals, for some people it's environmental concerns, health concerns, um, who knows what. But what all those issues have in common is that they are thoughtful issues. You know, very few people become vegan or plant-based arbitrarily, you know, or because it's easy. You know, like it, there's, not a ton of expediency. So even if it's someone who wants to live longer, be more attractive or is concerned about climate change or deforestation, like there's still, it's the prefrontal cortex is interjecting itself in that usually, like usually the way people respond to food is they want it in front of them and they grab for it. And it's very unevolved, it's alligator behavior. <clears throat> um, except alligators generally are a little more ethical than we are. Like they, they kill for a reason. They don't kill someone because someone stole their parking space. Um, so what you're describing, like if the world, if more people became vegan or plant-based or even vegetarian, they're doing it for a reason. And that reason, like once you introduce rational, empirically supported, evidence-based thinking, it starts to spread, you know, like it's very hard to silo or compartmentalize rational evidence-based thinking. And I really do believe, you know, once, like if someone decides to go vegan, they're not going to behave in an unevolved way in every other aspect of their life. They might, I'm sure there's evidence for that, but more likely there'll be almost like a, 
a neurological cascade effect where making that rational, consistent choice will then spread to other aspects of their life. Um, I mean, that's sort of, unfortunately, what we see in the world around us, you know, like the people who are willing to look at the world and respond with evidence, you know, to look at the evidence and say, okay, my response is going to be rational and informed by evidence. Those are the people, I mean, I'm trying to be very diplomatic, but like, because uh, I'm assuming, unfortunately, I'm talking about us. Um, we are the people who are less likely to get to kill someone over a parking space. We're less likely to stab someone because they looked at us funny. We're less likely to go to the, the to DC on January 6th and invade the Capitol. You know, we're less likely to march with tiki torches claiming that white people are superior. You know, like that's the cascade effect. Yeah, and the funny thing is, it's like you talk about all of those things, and this conversation actually kind of began jokingly uh, with, you know, well, if if vegans are generally happier people and more content people, well, how different do you think that their Thanksgiving dinner is compared to, um, you know, the people who gather around with their family and they're at each other's throats as they're going for that last turkey leg? And, you know, it, it started in jest, like I said, but then it, it snowballed into a much deeper conversation like you and I are having now. So you can look at it and it is kind of humorous, but there's a lot to it. I'm actually taping a segment with Dr. Neil Barnard uh, shortly after you and I conclude here today, all about the way that, you know, food can help um, improve or hinder somebody's mood and the link with depression and anxiety and stress, all of the things that so many of us are trying to cope with right now. And it is my sincere hope that a lot of people hear that message today and um, get some help. But um I want to I want to go back to your childhood in that TEDx talk. Sorry to do a 180 here, um, but in that TEDx talk, you you mentioned about I believe it was your late father prior to his passing brought home a ton of lab rats. Is that accurate? Yeah, I don't know about a ton. Um, maybe because <laughs> I was, you know, what a week old, three weeks old. But my father uh, had worked at Columbia University in the chemistry department, and I guess. They were doing experiments and they had lab rats and he brought them home. And so I grew up in this odd menagerie in a basement apartment in Harlem in New York with, you know, a dog, a cat, some lab rats, who knows what else. And going back to the earliest thing we talked about, that's when I realized animals were so much more predictable and so much more so much less mercurial than humans because my parents were both very unpredictable you know they fought a lot they both had substance abuse issues you know and i think you know in my first couple of years i learned this lesson i like i looked at the humans who were so unpredictable you know screaming at each other one minute crying the next minute nice the next minute laughing the next minute then screaming again and then I looked at the animals and I was like, oh, the animals are reliable. You know, the animals are not, you know, doing drugs and screaming at each other and getting in fist fights and then laughing and crying. Like the animals are pretty predictable. And I really feel like almost like at that point I was hardwired to become an animal rights activist. 
And one of the things that we do here at the Physicians Committee is work tirelessly to end animal research uh, in labs. And one of my favorite conversations I've ever had in the four years of the show was with um, one of our, our people who is far smarter than I am. Uh, Christy Sullivan is her name. And she was explaining to me how, despite the fact that we're using millions of animals in this lab research every year, so few of these studies actually translate to human relevant research. So it's it's like, it's a moot point. Like we're doing this for not essentially. And so my question to you is this, uh, what is your opinion of the current state of uh, animal research here, given the fact that there are so many more far accurate human relevant methods that uh, do not include animals. I mean, you've got organ on a chip, which is essentially, you know, human cells being tested for humans. Um, I mean, I am not a doctor, nor am I a researcher, but from my perspective, I just ask a few simple questions. Like, if I was bleeding to death, would I get a transfusion of rat blood? Um, if I had kids, kidney failure, would I have a rat kidney replacing my kidney? If I, you know, if my eye, if I had an eye problem, would I replace an eye with a rabbit's eye? Um, these answers are no, pretty clearly, you know, like, like, for example, a friend of mine just rushed her dog to the vet because the dog ate a grape. And everyone knows dogs can't eat grapes, they can't eat chocolate, they can't eat garlic. So if we are clearly so physiologically different from these beings, how in the world can we test medicine on them and think that it's gonna to apply to us? Like it's so ridiculous that I can't even, pro I mean, again, I'm not a researcher and maybe some researcher would have some really good answer, but you look at history, you know, like thalidomide passed all of its animal trials with flying colors and it destroyed millions of people's lives. I mean, it's just, on and on and on. And as you said, it would be one thing, like if researchers said, there's no better alternative, I'd be like, well, that's, that's, that makes sense. I, I still oppose it, but I see the logic in that. But when you look at it, you know, I see my PCR newsletter and I see how many phenomenally better ways of doing, you know, testing there are. I'm like, why in the world are we still testing things on, individuals who are physiologically as far away from us as they could be. You know, like, I would just like to ask anyone, yeah, like the next time you need blood, try to have a transfusion from a rat or a beagle or a bunny and see how that works out for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, you post it so simply, but it does make all the sense in the world. You're absolutely right. Who's going to have that transfusion of rat blood? It doesn't make sense. The other thing is, especially, you know, in such a, a you know, era where so many people are, you know, using medicine in need of medicine. Um, if you take animals out of the equation, one of the other things that has been brought to my attention is that it dramatically speeds up the testing process. And so you can bring these things to market far faster, far cheaper, and there's a far greater benefit for man, again, that excludes all of those animal tests. So I see nothing but upside here. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a friend who worked at a startup about 10 years ago and they did molecular modeling. And she showed me 
their proprietary software. I don't know what happened to the company, but like it was phenomenal. You know, like they would actually, you'd have 3D models of molecules, how they bound together, how they work together. And like, I was like, why in the world are we testing on rabbits? You know, like this is so much more accurate. And it, I don't know, just, uh, I don't understand, like, I wish I could speak with a little more knowledge and experience of the animal testing world. So I could say that it's completely corrupt and needs to be abolished. I assume it's corrupt and needs to be abolished, but I, you know, I'm sure that every single person at PCRM is smarter than me and better able to speak to that. No, no, no. Well, I don't know about every single person because you can't count me in that. I just ask questions, but I, I do think, you know, in, in the lay perspective, um, it's kind of antiquated, you know, when you know that those results don't often translate to human relevancy. And you also know that there's far greater technology with, uh, that will in fact translate with almost 100% certainty. So, you know, when you, when you look at that, it's just kind of like, well, why, why are we still doing it this way when we have something so much better over here? So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on here and uh, have a little fun because you did just, in fact, release a new cookbook, the Little Pine Cookbook, and that is chock full of recipes uh, from the restaurant uh, in L.A. Uh, that shares the name. And so when did you get inspired to bring a cookbook to market? I'm not sure that a lot of people would associate Moby, the musician, with a cookbook. Well, and I need to qualify it a little bit. I, I opened Little Pine about five years ago, but I no longer own it. Um, when the pandemic started, I realized that, you know, like there were just so many other things I was working on that, you know, owning and running a restaurant was just, it was just too much. So I sold it to some people and they currently run Little Pine and they're doing a great job with it. Um, but the cookbook represents the Little Pine menu as it was when I owned it. And to me, everything is dictated by activism. You know, the only reason I opened the restaurant was I realized like when it comes to animal activism, um, we have, you know, social media, we have animal sanctuaries, you have amazing 501c3s like PCRM, uh, we have books, movies, but there's something so powerful and we're so lucky in a way as activists that we get to feed people, you know, like I can't think of too many other types of activism that it involves sitting down and eating a beautiful meal. Uh, and so I realized, um, and I'm sure maybe again, I'm stating the obvious, but that a lot of people that we know, progressive, smart people are still very unevolved when it comes to food. You know, like they drive a Prius, they vote for Democrats, they listen to NPR, but they still go to Burger King every now and then. And we can yell at them and say, hey, that's hypocritical and inconsistent and cruel, or we can give them an alternative, you know, which is why I think food is so important. And so the idea with Little Pine was to create this beautiful space with a beautiful menu where people could come in and be exposed to the physical the good physical reality of veganism, um, you know, and it, and for people to come in and almost have like that Saul on the road to Damascus moment where they're like, Oh, this is veganism. Like it's, you know, it's 
it's a nice thing and it's consistent with the rest of my beliefs. So that was the idea behind the restaurant. Um, and that's also the idea behind the cookbook. Do you have some favorites in the cookbook, some recipes that somebody goes out, it's available now, they pick it up. What's the first one they should go to? Well, I'll be honest, the recipes, some of them are pretty involved. Like some of them are very simple and even a dimwit like me could make them, but like <laughs> some of them are pretty complicated. So it depends to your question, depends who's making the food. Like if I went to my friend Peter's house, Peter is a great chef. The things in the cookbook that I would want him to make are very different, <coughs> excuse me, than what I would want me to make. Gotcha. Um, so, and it's hard to say because there's phenomenal savory stuff, there's phenomenal desserts, there's, um, I mean, one of the most consistently popular things we had were our chocolate chip cookies. And I think there are quite a lot of people who are buying the cookbook just to get the <laughs> chocolate chip cookie recipe because we used to have people come into the restaurant and try and bribe the kitchen staff to get the chocolate chip cookie recipe. Ooh. And now it's in a book. It's anyone can have it. So, and the other thing, the most important thing for me is I will never, nor could I ever personally profit from veganism or, or animal rights activism. Like if other people do, that's fine. What other people do, you know, if someone wants to be entrepreneurial and vegan, great. But for me, any money I make from selling the cookbook or from doing anything related to animal rights or veganism has to go back to animal rights organizations. Like ethically, my conscience could not allow me to profit from veganism and animal rights. Like that I would, I, I would not, I would just basically stop sleeping because of like guilt and misery. And you've done so much to support us here at the physicians committee over the years. I've always wondered when did we first pop onto your radar? Uh, I mean, going back to the eighties, cause as I said, I've been vegan since 87. Um, when Dr. Barnard was uh, the in-house doctor for PETA. Um, at least that's what I remember is I remember reading, you know, the PETA newsletter and I think Dr. Barnard had a little column in it. And then as time passed, I, I think I first heard about PCRM in the nineties at some point. And then the reason why I support PCRM as much as I can is the uniqueness of what you guys are doing. Um, because as we know, a lot of 501c3s are great, well-intentioned, but not run by doctors. You know, they're run by wonderful, like, you know, all of the other 501c3s, the nonprofits, they're wonderful, but they're run by people like me. Like, you know, college dropouts or people with Bachelor of Arts degrees. And there's something about PCRM, PCRM, the fact that it's run by doctors, it gives it a voice of authority and a gravitas that no other 501c3s have. And uh, just a couple of quick ones as we wrap up again, thank you so much for your support. Um, there's that saying that oftentimes a person will wear their heart on their sleeve and you You've taken that to the next level with um, all of the, all of your tattoos in support of animal activism. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what what is your tattoo count up to these days? How many do you have? 
Mm-hmm. I'm counting in my head, which is ironic. So I'm counting <laughs> in my head what's on my head. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think uh, ten, maybe. Um, and I want to get more, but then the pandemic happened, and clearly, like going to some like tattoo parlor and sitting there for three hours is maybe not the most COVID safe thing to do. Um, but the idea is like, there's nothing more important to me than animal rights. And I was like, why not just, you know, use my body as a billboard, you know, one, just to sort of prove to myself, to remind myself, like, this is what's important to me. This is my priority. And also to see if people stop and ask me questions, you know, like, um, which sometimes they do. Sometimes I just get really strange looks from older people. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's definitely been very interesting. Like some of the questions I've been asked and the conversations I've had, and I found what's very encouraging is the number of non-vegans and non-animal rights activists who will ask me, and when I explain the tattoos, they'll all say the same thing. They're like, oh, I really should go vegan. Mm-hmm. Like I keep hearing that, like, oh, like this guilt, this sort of wincing guilt that people have about not being vegan. And I find that very encouraging. Like, I feel like we're potentially on the edge of a big watershed moment, you know, as we're seeing in places like the UK, where all of a sudden, like, it's not inconceivable that quite a lot of people are going to start being vegan or at least more plant-based. And the final question is this, is one of the most rewarding aspects of doing this show over the last four years has been the feedback that we've gotten from people who have said, well, thank you so much for teaching me about this. I had no idea. And now my health has improved dramatically. The show primarily focuses on on nutrition, um, and, and obviously we delve into animal activism. But you know, to hear somebody who has lost an incredible amount of weight, reversed diabetes, reversed heart disease, whatever the case may be, like that makes me so very happy. But sometimes, Moby, we get these emails from people who would be the last person you ever think in the world would give uh, a vegan diet a try. And so I'm curious then, what you know who. Do you have somebody who you thought would be the last person in the world who would ever give this thing a try? Like, what was your toughest nut to crack in terms of getting somebody to try it? Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, there've been so many people over the years. Um, and it's hard to say, I mean, one of the most encouraging stories is Eric Adams, the next mayor of New York. You know, um, and if you see the before and after pictures, like before Eric went vegan, um, he was a giant, sick, diabetic, you know, precancerous mess. And now he's like trim and sharp and look great and is super healthy. So I don't think I had any hand in getting Eric, future mayor of New York, to go vegan. But like, that's a perfect example. Like, I imagine if, if someone had gone to him 20 years ago and said, hey, go vegan, he would have been like, what are you talking about? Um, me personally, I wish I had like an, a great story, but I, I, I mean, I have some family members who definitely, their lives have been improved by either going vegan or being predominantly plant-based, but I, 
I apologize for not having a, a more personal, dramatic story. Part of it is I don't really spend that much time with humans, so. <laughs> <laughs> Still surrounding yourself with animals, huh? Uh, animal, basically, I just, I, the human world is okay, but I prefer the non-human world. I got you. I got you. I think a lot of us feel that way. So yeah. you you are definitely not alone in that. Well, I do thank you so very much for your time today. Uh, the Little Pine Cookbook, go ahead and pick that up and try one of those delicious recipes. Maybe start small and then work your way up to one of the more involved ones like you were talking about. Moby, thank you so very much again for your time and for being such an advocate here for us at the Physicians Committee. Oh, thanks. And please let me know if there's anything I can do to help in the future. You can join with Moby and help us end unnecessary animal testing, that cruel animal testing. You can help us end that and save those animal lives and help others learn the benefits of a cruelty-free plant-based diet along the way. You can do all of that, accomplish all of that by supporting our work here at the Physicians Committee. And it only takes a moment to do it visit pcrm.org slash donate. That's pcrm.org slash donate. And you can give as much or as little as you can because every little bit goes such a long way to continue our life-saving efforts here at the Physicians Committee. So that is pcrm.org slash donate or click the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Moby's Little Pine Cookbook, which features that collection of delicious recipes from the restaurant that he founded in L.A. There's a link to do that in the episode notes as well. And while you have Moby on the mind, be on the lookout for Moby Doc. That is a documentary where he vulnerably shares his journey to the top of the music world and the struggles and the triumphs that came along the way. He's such a big name in the music industry. When I told my brother and my cousin that he was going to be on the show today, my cousin emailed me back and was like, no way, I've just been listening to Play in my car. And Play is Moby's album that is certified platinum in 20 countries. And it's also ranked among the 500 greatest albums ever released by Rolling Stone magazine. Check it out if you haven't had a chance to take a listen. And if you haven't had a chance yet to subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available, please go ahead and take a second to do that. It literally only does take a second. So when you go there and you look for the Exam Room, you find it, you hit that subscribe button, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating helps us climb a little bit higher in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people to find this information, information that helps to save animal lives and helps to save human lives by promoting the benefits of a plant-based diet. So please go ahead and subscribe and leave that five-star rating today. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Moby for being so generous on all fronts with us here at the exam room. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening, 
And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>